You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to expand on our understanding of ceramics with a little look at glazing. But first, a bit of history. The Japanese tea ceremony used to be a grand ritual. The nobility would enjoy green tea with great pageantry. It was almost a competitive event with elites trying to outdo each other. That changed in the 16th century as Zen Buddhism took root in Japan. The Buddhist philosophy is based on the idea that simplicity is liberating. The tea ceremony became more tranquil in an uncluttered space, free from distractions of excess ornamentation. A vase holds a single flower in a mostly empty room, allowing people to appreciate the beauty in an atmosphere that's calm quiet. With the ritual now centered around taking in the quiet, peaceful moment and savoring the beauty of simplicity, the Raku Bowl was formed. In 1592, the tea master Senro Rikyu encouraged his friend Sasaki Chojiro. Apologies for any mispronunciations, I am not a native speaker. But Rikyu was not only a friend and a tea master, he was a patron of Chojiro, and he encouraged him to develop a new style of bowl. At the time, Japanese ceramic artists were making finely crafted, colorful pieces inspired by their neighbors in China. Chojiro sought to make a piece based on philosophy rather than aesthetics. So his works were a simple, mostly monochromatic black or red. Raku bowls are humble. They're hand-formed, starting with a flat, circular base and coils built up around the sides. The process results in each piece being unique with evidence of the artist's hand in the creative process. As I look at a Raku bowl, I can't help but imagine the artist forming the piece, hand-laying coils, holding it up eye-level as they slowly smooth the contours. The artist restrains themselves using the most humble methods rather than wowing people with fancy tools, elaborate methods, and technical precision. The beauty comes from appreciating how the final piece reflects the process of creation. It's about the care and labor the artist invests in it. A raku, like French champagne, is a tradition claimed only by a select few. It's tied to a region and the tradition. Technically speaking, the true Raku are just the works of Chojiro and his descendants. They used glaze made from crushed stones found along Kyoto's Kamo River. 
The thing that really gives the pieces their unique appearance, though, is the firing method. Raku pieces are fired at a low temperature for a short time, and then removed from the heat and rapidly air-cooled. The heating and cooling along with the mineral content, like iron and manganese, results in somewhat unpredictable finishes. Some pieces have a deep, lustrous black, and others are more matte with the texture of citrus skin. Raku pieces reflect the human touch in the process of creation. Just as with people, each one is unique with subtle differences to discover and appreciate if we take the time to look with the right mindset. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So now joining me once again, I have Kathy Skaggs, art teacher extraordinaire, who has been working with Amico Clays for a while now, doing all of their educational content. And I really appreciate your taking your time once again to talk to me, this time about glazes. Kyle, I'm glad to be here and I'm happy to talk about glazes. Well, I am really happy to have you come on to talk about glazes because ceramics, glazes, this is not exactly my area of expertise. I know a little bit, but I'm hoping you can enlighten me a little bit. Uh, so first off, just what what is a glaze made of? Well, a glaze is uh, made basically all glazes of three different categories of ingredients. There's lots of ingredients, it's like baking a cake. You need lots of things. One ingredient, one main ingredient is silica or a glass former. You need something that's going to form a glass once you put it in the kiln. But if you put something like silica only in a kiln, yes, it would make glass, but at way too high a temperature for what we're gonna fire. So to lower the temperature, and by low, we still mean pretty hot by our standards, um, you're gonna add a category of ingredients called a flux. And a flux basically changes the temperature that that glass will melt at. Now you've got the glass, you've got it melting, but now you have to control it like, is it gonna flow like honey or is it gonna flow like water off that pot? How are you gonna how are you gonna contain it on that pot and not just have it run right off? That's your third category. It's called a modifier, and that's usually clay itself. And so then, you know, you've got those components that it sounds to me like that's sort of the structure. That's almost like the binder in a glaze. But then we've got to get the color. Where does the color come from? 
Well, your color kind of comes from two main places. One place is kind of your natural form, natural things. It's your metals. Metals make the color, predominantly metals, make the colors in a glaze. So for instance, if you had a rusty pipe and you scraped off some of the rust and mixed, could mix it into the glaze, it would color it. Or even if you bought a copper pipe at Home Depot and shaved off a little bit of the end with a file, that would color a glaze. So it's a lot of metals. That's one, cat, one kind of ingredient. What a lot of potters use are called mason stains. Mason, the mason company, has already packaged and made those pulverized and powdered like and the color like they're gonna look like when they're fired. And that's what a lot of potters add to their glazes. Okay, um, so it's it's actually coming from almost like natural materials. It's a lot of metals and stuff that I would imagine are, again, ground down into a, a powder for the pigment, right? Right, right. Chrome, cobalt, iron, copper, natural forming that have been pulverized. And then you've kind of already alluded to this, but one of the, one of the most difficult things for me and a lot of my students to wrap our heads around is the way that glazes will change colors after they are fired in the kiln. Like when I look at, when I open a jar, it looks like this milkshake or something like that. It's a little bit thick, but still runny. It's got a little bit of color, but it's very pale. And generally speaking, it's going to come out as a bolder version of that after it's fired. Why does it, why does the color change in the kiln? You know, the color just through the magic of the heat is going to change. And a while ago, they've changed glazes a lot. It used to be that you'd get a green glaze would be red in the jar because it's iron. Iron is what's going to make some of that green. So when they would mix it and put it in there, it would look brick red in the jar and then students will paint it on and then it goes in the kiln and it comes out green. Students were like, oh my gosh, that's very hard to figure out. I mean, it's complementary colors, you know? I mean, it's yeah. the exact opposite of what you expect. So now what they do is they color the raw ingredients to look like what they're gonna look like after they're fired. So now a lot of times, say teacher's palette glazes are a line of glazes that we sell to a lot of schools. They're meant to look like what exactly what they look like before and after they're fired. So that students can, if it's light blue in the jar, they know it'll be light blue on their pots. But you are right, when the it goes through the heat in the kiln, the colors get much brighter and they do change. They don't always look like what they're gonna look like in the jar exactly. Well, and I just appreciate that you all have people who are smarter than me who have solved those problems and have figured out how to make glazes where what you see is what you get because um, trying trying to tell a bunch of seven and eight-year-olds, like, I know it looks red, but it'll come out <laughs> green. I, I don't want that headache. So I appreciate what you've done with the teacher's palette stuff. And it's interesting when they develop a glaze at Amico, um, that they test all the batches. They have kilns everywhere right there near where they uh, formulate the glazes and they do a lot of testing as quality control to make sure that what they're really putting in those jars are gonna work for you. 
Yeah. Now, on the topic of like what's going in the jars, or really when my jars are running out, let's say I don't have a color, but it's something like, you know, I want to make a gray, but I only have black and white. Can I mix the colors and will it come out as expected? Or is there going to be some sort of strange chemical reaction that makes me wish I had paid better attention in high school? Well, um, you, it's difficult if you uh, use different brands and put them together or different lines of glaze that are different base formulas together. That's always tricky. But glazes like, say, Teacher's Palette that I was talking about earlier that yeah. are meant, you know, they look like before and after they're fired, they mix like paints. So when you put red and yellow together, you will get orange. Or if you add white and black, you will get gray. And you can kind of tell uh, what those colors are going to look like. So those, if you stay within that glaze line and mix the similar, you know, mix those together, you're mixing the same base glaze, your chances are pretty good. But you always have to test because you really don't know what you're going to get. Okay, so what I'm hearing is I need to stick with the simple teacher's palette line that yes. you developed for people like me. Um, yes. Now, I've had a number of students who, you know, again, giant failure as their teacher. Uh, they get their stuff out of the kiln. They're looking at it. I mean, glazes, glazes, if I'm being honest, glazing is where the wheels fall off on a lot of projects, you know. No matter how many times I say two or three coats of glaze, make sure you cover the whole thing, you know, smooth, even, consistent coats, all of that sort of stuff. There are those kids who look at it come out of the kiln and it's got those dull, rough patches. They missed some spots. They only put one coat on there. What can we do? Can we glaze it again? Can we fire it again? Or, you know, like what's going to happen there? Okay, so the number one problem that I see with people glazing is they never apply enough because they almost think about it like they're painting, like on, on a canvas. They'll dip their brush in the glaze, they'll wipe the brush off, and then they'll paint and they continue to paint until the brush runs out. That's not what you want to do with glaze. With glaze, it's all about getting it from what's in the jar to on your pot. So you dip your brush in, don't wipe it off, put a nice heavy coat on, and then keep dipping it and brush. And when I was a teacher, I made them chant as they glaze, you know, dip, brush, brush, dip, brush, brush, dip, because they, you want to dip it in the glaze and paint, but you're not painting a house. You're trying to get the glaze to the pot. And it is important to put more than, you know, to put approximately three coats of any glaze on a pot. And you just kind of have to count it as you go around it. Yeah. And, you know, the failed musician in me loves the, a good chant. So thank you for that. I'll have to try that. But as I'm looking at stuff, I can't tell if they put one coat or three. I can tell when it's zero, but I can't tell if it's more than that. Can I have students reglaze something and then fire it again? Will it adhere to something that's been vitrified in the kiln? Um, yes, I have refired things multiple times. Uh, well, not usually multiple times, more than once. Um, in a classroom, it's difficult, but you can apply another coat of glaze. Um, so always better to do it right the first time and put three coats on there. But 
all hope is not lost if there is a problem in that first firing. Um, now, I had flashbacks to a horror that I encountered <laughs> with um, a student who painted theirs and then didn't like the way it looked, so they glazed over it. And so from the outside, I'm looking at it, it's just like, oh, this is covered in glaze. We've kind of alluded to glaze is like paint, but it's not paint, right? Um, can you kind of explain a little bit about what's different? I mean, what happens to a paint when we put it through the kiln? Well, you know, paint is an odd thing and it typically burns off. But one year I had a very unusual experience and I had a girl that put brown temper paint on a, a sculpture and yeah. she didn't like it. So I said, wash it off, wipe it off. I'll put it in the kiln and I'll burn it off so that you can uh, glaze it, just get the rest yeah. of it off. I didn't typically do that. But what was so odd is that when it came out, it was still brown. And the oh, reason really? is there was iron in the temper paint that kept it that way. But typically, if you put paint in a kiln, it typically burns off. But some paints have iron, some paints have titanium, some paints have metals in them that will do some unusual things. I haven't found it to be a very good idea. I mean, no, you think, no. oh man, let's try that. But it's it's never usually a pr pretty experience, frankly. Yeah, like I said, I, I've had a few, <laughs> I, I don't know why I seem to be the walking proof of Murphy's Law, that, that <laughs> which can go wrong will go wrong. But I, I've had a few, most of it burns off, like you said, but I did have one that it they painted it with acrylic and then glazed over it. And when it came out of the kiln, it looked like a porcupine. My only guess is, I, I can only guess that the acrylic, because acrylic's basically a plastic, I'm assuming it melted and curled away and prevented and prevented the, the glaze from adhering directly to the body of the sculpture. And so it's just like shards of glass hanging off of it. It was, a painful experience as the oh, teacher, man, but also like the person who had to grab it out of the kiln. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Um, so learn from me, be better than me. Paints <laughs> and glaze, totally separate. Don't put paint through the kiln. I do have some questions though about some other, other materials that should go through the kiln. Like what's the difference between an underglaze and a regular glaze? Well, you know, that confused me for a real long, for a long time too. And an underglaze, just like the term, just like the name says, goes under a glaze. What is an underglaze? An underglaze is basically and traditionally a clay-based colorant. It doesn't have any glaze components. So sometimes that's why you can put it on the bottom of a pot. You put it traditionally on a pot before it's fired. Um, but velvet, um, Amico velvet underglazes, I liked them in my classroom because they look like what they'd look like before and after they're fired. And students could put it on um, leather hard, bone dry, and sometimes even bisque uh, pottery. But it's traditional underglazes, traditionally they're added before the pot is ever fired the first time because it is a clay-based colorant. Then once it comes out of the kiln, it's still dry looking. It's like uh, some students would say to me, they'd say, 
Miss Skaggs, I want to make a pinch pot, but I want it to be a blue pinch pot. Well, by the time you put enough cobalt carbonate in the clay body to make the clay blue, you've got a $50 pinch pot. It's very <laughs> expensive. So what potters do instead is they'll make the pinch pot, they'll cover it all with a blue underglaze, and it's a veneer coating. It's like a colored clay coating on the clay itself. And then when you fire it, it's still not shiny. And then you put a glaze over it, traditionally a clear glaze, okay. um, but even a translucent glaze like teacher's palette light is a translucent glaze. You can also use those over an under glaze. Okay. So the, the glaze is going to be that glassy with color. Um, whereas the under glaze is instead of like silica or a glass, it's ground up clay with pigment. And so it's going to come out as kind of a, a duller matte finish, but it's going to apply that color. Yes, yes. Okay, that makes and sense. What's, and what's nice about those underglazes is that you can water them down and use them like watercolor on a, a bisque piece of pottery or stain it, mm -hmm. you know, put it on and wipe it off. Um, in my studio, what I do is I pour it in a pie pan and I let it get very, very dry and I do a lot of printmaking with it. So I use it for silk screening, block printing and things like that. So it's, it's very versatile, but the reason it can do that is it's basically a clay. Okay. I Now I have new methods to try out because honestly... I've avoided underglazes because I've just been like, it's not shiny. And I teach elementary, so like shiny is shiny is the currency of small children. <laughs> like that's yes. what you want. You're just like, it's it's gonna come out glittery, it's gonna come out glossy. As long as it's shiny, everything's yes. good. Yes. Um, but now I'll I'll definitely have to be checking that that one out and trying some different stuff. Yeah. Um, They're very flexible. So thank you so much. You've taught me so many things about glazes. And last week you taught me a lot about clay. Any other tips or tricks? I mean, I always want to know. It's the things I don't know to ask. So what, what should we know to make the most of the medium? So a couple of things. Number one, after you glaze your pot and you've put on your three coats and everything's good to go, before you put it in your kiln, very important to take a damp sponge and wipe off the bottom. Any drop of, of glaze on the bottom turns to a glass and will sometimes fuse it to your kiln if you're not careful. And it, it's very sharp when you take it out of the kiln. So it's very important that you damp sponge it off. Okay, so clean the bottom so it doesn't get fused to the kiln. That reminded me of just a little trick that I have found. You know, when you got that piece that it's been bisqued and then it broke, I have used glaze to glue pieces back on. Not sure if that's proper technique, but it has always worked in my classroom. At least if it's something that's in a spot where gravity will hold it in place for a day while the glaze heats up to about, what is it, like 1800 degrees and then cools back down. And, you know, that always works if you can stack an object, one on top of another, if it's something that sits on another piece. But what I've had students try is like a handle on a cup to put the glaze in between the handle and the cup. But when the kiln gets hot, sometimes that handle will fall. So yeah, it melts and falls tricky. away. It's tricky, but if you can get it to bond it together, it's a, it's good to go. It'll stay. 
Yeah, like I said, it only works if it's something that gravity will hold it in place. Like, uh, like I do, a, I do a number of relief sculptures. So you're talking slab construction, and a piece falls off of it. You can use the glaze to stick it back on. And you have to be careful when you have a, a an object with a lid on it. The the little the part where that bottom and the top come together have to be wiped very well, because if you don't right wipe that really well, you've now got a sculpture instead of a box that opens. So it it really is a sealing agent. So every time you make like a little slab box or something like that, make sure there's no glaze where the two touch if you want it to come apart later. Yeah, I've learned that lesson more times than I'd like to admit. Yeah, we all have. <laughs> But thank you once again, Kathy Skaggs, uh, art educator extraordinaire, working with Amico Clay and finding time to fit me in your schedule. Really appreciate it. And once again, I'm going to link to the Amico website where you have put all sorts of wonderful educational resources for those who want to learn about clay from someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Kyle, you are so welcome. Great job. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Art Smart is produced, recorded, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. Special thanks this week to Kathy Skaggs from Amico Clay. The background music you've been enjoying throughout this episode was created by Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. Please be sure to tune in next week when we're going to focus on paint. Art Smart is an airwave media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.